Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Miriam Pina. And I'm Joe Frotcham. And today we have in uh, as a guest, Kenneth Austin. Kenneth, welcome to American Narratives. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm just pleased and honored to be here. We're just excited to have Kenneth and his story and spend some time with Kenneth today. A uh, little bit about Kenneth. He went to a few universities you may not have heard of. Um, I think his undergrad was at MIT. And then that wasn't good enough. He went off and got did graduate studies at Harvard University. And then he got his law degree from Yale. So pretty good trifecta. But just as importantly, I believe you're from Brooklyn. Isn't that true, Kenneth? Did you go to Brooklyn so, High School? So I'll just uh, say I'm from Queens, which is very near Brooklyn. <laughs> okay. Um, and I went to, uh, so Harvard is my undergrad, and then I went to MIT and then Yale Law School. Thank you. Um, Queens is, uh, is, was a wonderful place for me to grow up. And it provided uh, not only a community, but life lessons for me. Yeah. So, um, so. I grew up in Southeast Queens at a time when there were uh, a number of African-Americans. They lived in this community and people bought their homes, grew up and, and raised their kids in the, in the community, which was uh, a very nice community setting. Many people came from the South because they had just followed the Great Migration. So even though I was born you know, a decade later, I, the community was well established by the time by the time I was growing up. So I had a, a, a community of aunties and uncles in addition to my immediate family. That's fascinating. Well, let, let's dive in then. I mean, so you, you're from Queens, South Queens. Um, South East Queens, that's right. Um, and, and so that worked well for you and, and got, rose up. Tell us a little bit about your family. Do you have siblings, your parents? Kind of what was your background and what were your, tell us more about your formative years. Yeah, sure. So my, my parents uh, were in civil servants and many people from the community were civil servants. In those days, that was for African-Americans, that was, you know, high paid uh, work um, with great benefits. And uh, the, uh, so they had uh, a home and uh, which they owned and a car and a couple of cars. And they were, they were both college people. So they had uh, college degrees. They valued college a great deal. And so I, you know, growing up and my brother and sister had both gone to college and gotten graduate degrees and all that. So growing up, you know, there was an expectation, at least within the household, that, uh, you know, I would be educated um, and, uh, and then go out into the world um, with a degree, um, if not more than one degree. Yeah, well, uh, and you've certainly met that expectation, as we've already mm -hmm. kind of alluded to. Let's start, go to the high school years. Uh, where did you go to high school? Was it public? Kind of, how was that choice made? And what was that experience like for you? Well, I went to uh, public schools all the way through until I got to college. Um, so New York City Public Schools. Um, I went to um, my junior high school was, uh, yeah, I was bused from this, this uh, area in Southeast Queens to an area that was um, ethnic, white. And at that time, it was not a great place to be uh, if you were African-American. And so, uh, and they let us know that early on, especially if your goal was to advance yourself. Mm. And so they tried to, uh, they beat us up and tried to, to kill us, but they didn't succeed. And uh, fortunately, they didn't succeed. But the, the lesson there was that there are people 
you know, who don't mean you well, and and it will do what they can to block you if you're trying to advance yourself. And so for me, you know, the big takeaway was it's important to know who those people are and to figure out how to navigate um, those situations. So that was my, my big lesson there. In, I got accepted uh, from there into the Bronx High School of Science. And that's really where I learned about the value of relationships. Because uh, having gotten accepted there and a couple of other competitive uh, high schools, uh, and it was a long distance from Queens to the Bronx. And so we're talking about a, like an hour and 45 minutes, a two-hour trip. And so my mother and I went up to the school and met with the, uh, an assistant principal and asked him questions about um, the school and what, uh, you know, my mother wanted to know what kind of care they would provide, et cetera. And, uh, of course, by the time, you know, we got to question number five, you know, said, he said, well, lady, I got a list, yay long, of people waiting to get in. So if your son doesn't take the spot, we've got, some, we've got other people. So uh, my mother, we got back in the car, and my mother said, well, I think we'll put in the, um, the acceptance today. We won't delay. Um, but... Uh, years later, what was interesting about it, I never talked to that man again. Senior year, I was applying to colleges, and this gentleman who I was meeting with as a career counselor uh, decided that I was getting ahead of myself in terms of the schools that I was applying to. He asked me for my list, and I gave him my list of seven schools. And he said, oh, you're aiming too high. He said, you won't even get into your top school on this, so we're not even going to. Uh, support you in that. So, uh, so my mother had uh, five or six questions that she wanted to ask this uh, assistant principal. And so we went through the questions about what kind of support you know the school was going to provide for her son, and the distance, and all that. And uh, finally, after she got to the third question, she could see he was losing patience, and he said, "Look, lady, we've got a list yay long of kids waiting to get into this school." So if you don't, your son doesn't take this spot, we have other people who will. So she got the message. And we got back in the car, and she said, yeah, I got the message. She said, I'm going to send in the, we'll send in the acceptance tonight. <laughs> we, we got the acceptance in. And the uh, interesting thing is, uh, you know, I started at the school, and four years later, I had never spoken to that man again. But the value of relationships... So when uh, I applied to college, I was applying to college, the, I met with my, my college counselor, had my first meeting with him, showed him my list of seven schools that I was applying to, and uh, he looked at the list and he says, oh, my boy, you're aiming too high. He said, you won't even get into the top school on your list. He said, so I'll save you from uh, even applying to that one. And I said to him, I said, well, how can you say that? I said, you don't know anything about me. You just met me. You know my name. I said, you don't know my grades, my SAT scores, any other activities. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, okay, you tell me about yourself. So I then told him about my grades and my activities and everything. And he said, hmm. He said, you have a bigger problem than I thought. But I said, I do? He said, yes. He said, your problem is you'll get into your top school and you won't do well when you get there. And if you're telling me you want to go to a good law school, he was like, you won't get into a good law school. Not after that. And he spent an hour explaining why he was not going to send in a school reference letter for me. Mm -hmm. 
to this top school, which was hard. And um, so at this point, I decided, you know, it, it, the, I, I had worked too hard to, to have this man, you know, give me this information, but he was the, he was the authority figure. I leave his office and I'm in the hallway walking back to my classroom. And who do I see but the same assistant principal that my mother and I had met with four years before? He said to me, how are you doing? And I gave him a summary of what had just happened. He said, Kenneth, I'll take care of it. You don't have to do it here. All of that, if my mother and I hadn't gone up there four years before, I'm sure, I wouldn't have felt, he wouldn't have asked, and I wouldn't have felt comfortable telling him the story. And the letter was submitted with my application. I got in and ended up in a good law school. <coughs> so the value of relationship, the other thing in that high school was it was, a, it was a tough place with a lot of tough love. But sophomore year, I had the opportunity to participate in a, and this really shows the value of, of relationships at the highest level. I had the opportunity to participate in a social science research program that the school had set up. And the idea was that you would work with a, a very well-known uh, scientist or a professor at a nearby uh, college or university, and then you'd write up the paper and you would uh, submitted to maybe some local um, uh, competitions. So I, I got into the program, which was an honor in itself, but then I met with the person that they had assigned me to, and for reasons that I can no longer recall, uh, it just didn't seem to be a good fit. And so I asked for a reassignment. Um, don't ask me how I had enough, you know, um, uh, confidence to do that, but I did. And after some back and forth, the director of the research program indicated that a new spot became available at City Graduate Center, which was in Midtown Manhattan. It turned out that luck was on my side. And I was assigned to work with a notable social science uh, scientist named Stanley Milgram. And he had done social science Oh, yeah, Stanley Milgram's huge. Yes, I read his stuff. And so you worked directly with Stanley? Yes, I worked directly with I was Stanley's assistant for a year. Wow. wow. And I didn't call him Stanley, of course, in high school. He was, you know, <laughs> Dr. Milgram. <laughs> Dr. Milgram. But it was just a wonderful experience. And I didn't know then uh, what I know now in terms of how famous he was and all that he had yes, done. Yes, um, But uh, it, it was a path-breaking project that we worked on. I then designed my own project, at, and after carrying it out, I wrote up the results and submitted a research paper to what was then the preeminent national science talent research competition for high school students called the Westinghouse talent, uh, Science Talent Search. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon afterwards, Professor Milgram wrote my college reference letter. And uh, then he passed away suddenly. So attending his funeral, uh, that's really where I learned, uh, you know, how great he was in terms of, uh, you know, the annals of 20th century sociologists. Um, I then, soon after the funeral, I learned that I was a winner of the competition, uh, this national competition. And so, you know, the press came calling and, the mayor and all that. I mean, it was it was 
quite impressive. But it really was Professor Milgram's reference letters to these schools that I think helped me a great deal to open up the doors to the colleges. And so then the doors just kind of flew open. And, um, and I came, came right on in. And so it is interesting that the, um, this college advisor had taken the position that I was not only uh, first not going to get in, but then if I was going to get in, I wasn't going to do well. He had no clue what was going on in terms of, you know, Professor Milgram and the award and all of that. And uh, I imagine if I had gotten stopped before applying and then got the award, you know, I would I would have missed out on a great opportunity. So let's uh, just pause there, Kenneth, mm-hmm. because this is this is really great stuff. One is you, you prefaced it by saying relationships. You're right. Uh, relationships with that person that your mom and y- yourself met with, obviously moving into the school as a freshman, Stanley Milgram. Uh, and, and But there's another piece to this. Tell me if I'm wrong. It's persevering even if there's doubters, right? There's a level of perseverance to find the right fit and not listen to people who maybe doubt you or don't, who don't even know you. Would, would that be accurate? Absolutely. You know, what I say to myself and I say to uh, groups of young people that I talk to, young professionals, is I will say that some people will have a place for you, but you don't have to settle for that place. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, I love it. And you didn't. No, you didn't. And uh, the person didn't know you perhaps was stereotyping you, putting you in a certain box, or felt you couldn't be uh, successful based on no hard, meaningful hard data whatsoever. And that happens to all of us. It certainly happens to folks of disadvantaged uh, communities. So if nothing else from this interview, this first part, take that golden nugget. Persevere. Don't listen to the doubters, especially those that don't have your best interest at heart. Well, you know, you you were asking earlier about growing up in Queens. Yes. Um, You know, I went to uh, a public school, public school 35, which um, is a, it's a, school of, of no particular note, but um, it provided a wonderful springboard for um, a number of the things that happened afterwards because it was a school comprised entirely of black and brown children. And um, the principal was an African-American woman at a time when the teachers, there were only two teachers of color at the school. But she created uh, an environment in which there were high expectations for us and we were allowed to dream. And I shall never forget, to your, to your question, I shall never forget that at the time there, was, uh, there weren't too many programs with people of color on television. But there was a program called That's My Mama. And the star of That's My Mama was a lady named Teresa Merrick. Later she became the star of August Wilson Broadway show, um, his first Broadway show called My Rainy's Black Bottom. But at this time, she was she was mama on That's My Mom. And we all watched her program. And the principal invited her to come to talk to us. And I can remember it vividly now, uh, sitting in the, in the auditorium, and she comes in, and she had on a robe and a tiara. And then she had these people who, who were tending to her. And she walked up to the stage and got on the stage, and she, her point was to inspire us that we didn't have to live in a certain condition. It was what mattered was what we could dream, and we could be whatever it was that we could dream. And that 
philosophy is what made that environment such a wonderful place because many of us became dreamers. We didn't look at the, the crumbling walls at the school. We didn't look at the conditions around the school. What we did was we focused on what it was that we could do to achieve in our lives. And so giving young people the opportunity to um, expand their minds and to dream, that was really the, the key thing there. What, so what is the dream, but there's also credibility when your principal represents you, right? It, it, it shows the power of the pioneers in, in new industries, new levels, and how that really can inspire people like you, Kenneth. Yeah, and in addition to that, because I couldn't agree with you more, Kenneth, um, the environment matters, leadership matters. And then lastly, when you, when you think about the dreams, it's for these kids, the younger generations, to see the possibilities of what is possible. And so that's what makes me think about. That's great. Well, the truer words have never been said. And when I was a, a sophomore in college, I decided I wanted to, someone, I saw someone on Wall Street, and I, you know, on the subway, and I thought, I, would, I wouldn't mind working on Wall Street. And uh, so I, I learned from my a friend of mine in college, who was a year ahead of me, that uh, Morgan Stanley was coming, and he said, well, you should go talk to them and get a summer job. He had had a summer job. So I went to the informational session, and at the end, I talked to the representative, and I said, uh, oh, I'm here. To, I'm going to get a summer job. I'd like to start, you know, May 15th, et cetera. And uh, he said, well, hold on. Slow your roll. He said, we don't do summer internships. And I said, well, my friend did one. And he said to me, he said, I'm sorry. He said, the, he said, we, he must know somebody. And I said, um, well, I said, I didn't know that. I said, I thought anybody could, could do this. And so he said, well, no, no, no. This session is for people who are graduating and will be in, uh, uh, going to, to, uh, work full time. So I went back to my friend that evening and he said, how did it go? And I said, well, I said, you didn't tell me you knew somebody. He said, oh, he said, no, I didn't do that. And so uh, I found out later, though, that there was a program called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity uh, from someone who was on campus who was a senior. And they said, Kenneth, you need to know about this program because they provide summer internships for um, high-achieving uh, college students of color. And you can work at one of the top firms. And I said, I can? Said, Absolutely. So you have to apply. It's a tough process, but you know you can get through. I got, I did get it, and I worked at Solomon Brothers, which was then one of the leading firms for a summer. It turned out that that was not uh, making pe rich people richer. It was not necessarily what I saw as my career path, but it was a great opportunity. And what I I later became uh, a board member of the organization for, for 12 years. And I learned that if given an opportunity, kids of all complexions can do just fine in finance and in corporate America. And so that was a, a big lesson for me. And I think most of the, the people who today are working in New York City on Wall Street and in finance who are people of color, uh, the majority of them have gone through this, uh, this uh, so, SEO program. So, but let's put a pause on that. So. So again, relationships, right? You knew somebody who knew somebody who surfaced opportunities in an interview and you were persistent again. I'm starting to see a common thread where you went back, you asked, you continued to ask. But let's let's talk about this this association that you're still part of and you've got to be very proud of, obviously. 
and what is the name of it? And tell us a little bit more about the mission and your role with them. So Sponsored for Educational Opportunity has been around since 1963. And uh, since 1980, the organization has had a program helping to place uh, young people of color in colleges uh, in finance jobs. And it's expanded over the years to include corporate law and consulting and, and a range of other things. But it's a wonderful organization. And so for 12 years, I sat on the board. And uh, I also was instrumental in starting the um, what, what they now call the Alumni Association. And the, uh, the beauty of the organization is that the, the motto is that you, you, you not only uh, are, are a beneficiary, but it's about those who come after you. So how you carry yourself, how you present yourself in these internships will make a difference in whether or not others have the opportunity, but also if you're going to get into a role in finance or in corporate America, it's about helping and mentoring uh, others. And so when I, years later, um, after law school, I became uh, a, a corporate lawyer in London. And one day I had an epiphany, soon after moving to London, that I needed to help young people. And so I said, that is going to be my career going forward. And so it took a couple years, but, um, but that was pivotal. This experience with uh, what we call SEO, Sponsored for Educational Opportunity, was pivotal in helping me to structure my thinking around the types of things that I, I thought were important to be able to do for young people. That is, so I see now kind of an evolving mission orientation. Right. It, that I see a series of I'm going to school for a larger purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm not just here to make richer people, rich people richer. Uh, so when did this evolve where you wanted to maybe leave a legacy or have a bigger, in, bigger impact on the world? Was it always there or is it something that kind of came to you as you went through you, Harvard or Yale Law School? No, I think, I think it, it evolved. Um, the, you know, certainly the experiences that I had in elementary school, junior high school and high school, I think sort of set the tone for um, you know, how I was going to think about um, my career long term. And uh, once, I, uh, once I had established myself, you know, I worked at the U.S. Treasury Department coming out of, of law school. And so I had a very uh, a strong uh, public policy experience there. I also learned the law um, from the ground up because I wrote memos and did research and that kind of thing. And so I had an understanding as to how uh, to think structurally about um, some of the problems that were causing uh, you know, the wealth gap in this country. And uh, you know, in thinking about that, um, in Treasury, you know, you see it all. Um, but in thinking about that, you know, I really had the opportunity to think, what role can I play in uh, in helping to ameliorate? Uh, and, and reduce that that wealth gap in this country, uh, and help folks, um, you know, who need a helping hand. And we know the wealth gap is is getting wider, not narrower. So right. uh, mm-hmm. I do believe that can lead to social unraveling. I think that's a massively valuable thing to focus mm-hmm. on, as far as the goodness of the earth, of of our society. Uh, looking at your background, is he managing partner and co-founder of Classic Manhattan? That one's interesting. What is, what is Classic Manhattan? What was uh, your role there? 
Well, so classic Manhattan actually came out of my experience uh, running a philanthropic organization, a national philanthropic organization, which was focused on, uh, and still is, focused on African-American communities. And so um, having run that organization, which was called, is called the Association of Black Foundation Executives, mm. uh, I got an understanding uh, as to how uh, resources can and assets can be built within these communities, um, both in terms of looking at assets that the communities already have in, in the South. You know, there's a lot of uh, real property that families own, but it's just sitting there fallow. And so, it, you know, I started working on a project called Land Rich, um, which, which we started um, as a regional um, uh, venture to work with African-American families that had land in the South, but owned them uh, in, in common in a form called heirs property, so still in the name of someone who died, you know, 100 years ago. And uh, what, what we saw was that there were um, opportunities for people to generate uh, wealth to be able, and also to be able to generate enough income that they could send their kids to college, they could own a car and put down a down payment on a house. And so these were assets that were already there. They didn't need handouts at all. They just needed to figure out how to to, to, to generate um, uh, resources from assets that they already had. And in the, in the North, we started working on, uh, working with foundations around mission-related investing. Most people know about investing uh, uh, in foundations from the perspective of grants. But grants are only 5% of what foundations do. So if you look at over $100 billion of giving, of assets that, that they may have, you're really talking about only 5% in terms of grants. So the other 95% is sitting there in anything from cash and cash equivalents to alternative investments. And so the idea is how do you use some of that other 95% to benefit um, communities, in particular um, in, in the case of the organization I was with, communities of color. And so they were working with um, private equity firms and others that were investing in urban communities and, uh, and, and, and doing good while doing well. And so foundations learned, and we would work with them very closely to understand how you could have a double bottom line investment. I decided after a certain point to work with a partner to develop a real estate firm that would focus on these very things and to try to model them and to show that in the private sector, these things can be tested and that they can work. Um, you know the 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 nonprofit structure is is not as um, it's not as flexible in terms of being able to test these kind of models at scale, and so that's what we were able to do. And then after um, after eight years, I, I sold that uh, entity and uh, moved back into philanthropy, Wallace Foundation. So let's uh, let's pause there. One thing I've noticed is you're a really smart guy, Kenneth. Uh, you know, they, they, I could tell you look at things systemically. <laughs> innovatively, and look at scale impact, right? And, and I see that that's kind of already an evolving theme. How can I have impact at scale? Mm -hmm. Perhaps by uncovering opportunities that weren't really exploited in the most positive way previously. Now, I also see a very heavy focus on communities of color, especially the youth, 
and helping and enable and empower them. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that's that's kind of a common theme I think I see. I don't know. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the common theme from even the stories you shared about going to high school and what you did to, you know, advocate for yourself um, to helping individuals and having that thought of generating resources to help and close that generational wealth gap um, is what I see. Yeah, and I and I do want to talk about Wallace. That's next. But one last thing that just as a morsel as I get out of this, know that not everyone has your best interests at heart. Even some grown-ups that you would hope would, even those folks perhaps in authority positions. Uh, I'm not. I'm not hearing you say be rebellious, but be curious, be inquisitive, mm-hmm. and stand back and advocate for yourself if if they're not advocating for you. Find a friend that will, if you're younger, because you don't need to believe what every authority figure tells you. Is that is that accurate? I think that's absolutely right. And the other thing is just not to get not to get allow yourself to get too distracted. By because they can take on a life of their own and you get so caught up in the things that people are trying to do to you that you don't do you don't do you yeah. <laughs> I love so, it. I the love key it. is to be able to do you rather than <laughs> focusing on what they're trying to do to you uh, so, I, uh, yeah no because you had you were a dreamer i love mm-hmm. i love that idea it's okay to dream it's okay to get beyond your current circumstance. In fact, it's probably necessary mm-hmm. to have an inspiring and compelling dream that, that is yours and own it. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's exactly right. And I think about you know Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King, you know, in 1963, talked about you know his dream. Right? It was not about the current conditions. It was about a condition of the mind that he was talking about. You know, his dream came from his mind, and he had expanded his mind, and he wanted others to expand their minds. And so when I think about, you know, things that inspired me growing up, you know, one of them is is certainly, you know, Martin Luther King. You know, we often take him for granted now because, you know, he's sort of in the the water supply. But at that time, you know, these things were not part of the water supply. And so just hearing, you know, in school about you know his dream is something that inspired us and i hope will inspire other young people as they advance their careers Mm -hmm. all right so let's now you you went to Wallace. you've been at wallace over 10 years now um Mm -hmm. what a great place Uh, could you tell the audience a little more about more about wallace and what attracted you to wallace and, and what you do at wallace sure well wallace first of all uh wallace is a it's approximately a two billion dollar uh, endowment. Um, it's a uh, private, independent, charitable foundation. We're based in New York City, um, we're downtown Manhattan. Um, the money came from a publishing empire called Reader's Digest, um, which was founded by D. Witt Wallace back in the 1920s. Uh, he and his, his wife died in the 80s and left the funds that comprise our corpus today. And we uh, design our work to benefit both uh, our direct grantees as well as the broader nonprofit uh, and philanthropic sector by developing credible, relevant evidence that can be uh, that can lead to equitable improvements in the K to 12 education space, after school, which we call learning and enrichment, and in the nonprofit arts. Um, and as you can imagine, my, uh, from my background, uh, the mission was very appealing to me. Um, you know, the idea of being able to um, create systems 
and scale those systems um, to serve young people who are otherwise um, not not being served well um, is very attractive. That is uh, obviously a significant endowment. And the Wallace Foundation does amazing work. I know you've touched, when you, in your PhD program, I think you've drawn from oh, Wallace's research. Oh, absolutely. The research the Wallace Foundation has and is, you know, embedding into education particularly is significant. You take a look at all the citations that the Wallace Foundation has um, based on their research. It's significant. So, yeah. So, great. So, what do you do at the Wallace Foundation? What, what do you find yourself doing on a given week? Oh, goodness. Um, let's look at days. <laughs> uh, I have three roles at the foundation. I'm the general counsel, so I have legal comes under me. I'm the corporate secretary, so you know I serve the committees as well as the full board and, uh, and have a governance role there. And then uh, public policy. I chair our internal public policy uh, engagement resource, or now it's a working group. So in, in terms of my roles at the foundation, I'm the general counsel, so legal comes under me. I'm the corporate secretary, so that means I interface with the board and with the board's committees, as well as the governance function of the organization. And I am the, um, the chair of our internal public policy engagement working group. And the working group um, is comprised of the leadership uh, across the foundation, including the CEO. The, I would say that on any given day, um, you know, I'm focused on whatever um, the foundation needs at that moment. Often, uh, in this, especially in this environment, the public policy engagement role, um, you know, will keep me very busy. Um, you know, with the culture wars and all that going on right now, we're, you know, we're certainly aware of what's going on in the country. But the, but the other thing is that when I came to the foundation, we were talking about taking this work to scale that Wallace was already doing, you know, getting, you know, um, evidence on effective practices, and uh, which is great in terms of talking to practitioners. But we also said, how would we bring this to policymakers and policy influencers so that you get it scaled up, not for policy's sake, but so that you can influence practice at a, at a higher level. And uh, it can, for private foundations, it can be uh, somewhat risky because there are laws that you know, restrict what you can do and, and all of that. There's also other risks involved uh, in terms of um, you know, being high profile in, in some of these areas. And so I led a process for creating a framework for the foundation to systematically engage in public policy. And that um, includes in state, local, and, and federal policy. The, I'm pleased that um, I've become sort of an expert in this area around the country, so people contact me um, a fair amount to, to get advice on how they can do this uh, at their own foundations. And um, as a result of some of the activities that I've been involved in and advising others, I've gotten to serve on the uh, Council on Foundations, uh, Public Policy Advisory Committee. I'm second time now I'm serving on that. Um, I've become very involved with Philanthropy New York, which is the New York Regional Association of Grant Makers, um, and, uh, and and currently the chair of the board of Philanthropy New York. And so I'm, I'm very involved, um, and I've been the co-chair of the Public Policy Committee there. So, you know, we've, we've really seen over the last decade since I arrived at Wallace, we've really seen 
um, the the field take to the to the to this information about how you can engage at a higher level and how you can make systems change and influence policy at a much higher level. Wow, uh, that's uh, that's impressive, and you're just getting going. I know. You know, as we kind of look at wrapping this up, um, what are what are some key nuggets that you would want to leave our audience? I mean, you've been very successful. You've started at, you know, Queens and certainly kind of had some, you know, very, very seminal moments where you've advocated for yourself. I think you've taken some great nuggets as far as the importance of relationships, mm-hmm. self-advocacy, listening to the right people, finding the right people to advocate and ally with you, uh, dreaming thinking big, thinking at scale, and going after it. And don't, don't put boundaries on yourself. Do you, as you would say. I love that. But what else would you leave and want to emphasize for our audience? I think that um, you know, the things that you, you've outlined are critical, absolutely critical. Um, I would emphasize starting with having a dream and a vision. Um, I think that's very important. Um, I talked about Dr. King's speech, um, you know, I have a dream, but my kids who are 10 have seen Black Panther and the sequel about five times each. They love it. They love seeing possibilities for themselves and the characters and the Wakanda nation. I didn't have that as a kid. I had a principal who, you know, saw it as her role to make sure that she inspired, but I didn't have all the other things. So the arts, and I would include movies and books and, and, and uh, you know, arts programs, the arts can be used to help children create their own, their own dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it can come from inside the school, it can come from the family, but, you know, it can also be generated from nonprofit arts and from, um, you know, other art-related activities. Um, navigation skills. Um, so start with a dream, but then navigation skills are key because you can get, you can stumble, you can hit, tripwires. And so knowing, even in this day and age, um, understanding how to do that. Many folks from communities that have been historically discriminated against, even today, are still first. The first technologist or the first scientist or the first political leader of some stripe. You pick the one, you decide which one, but there's a first. So learning the skills to work around folks who have a place for you that is not where you see yourself and navigating systems not used to the presence of black and brown people is valuable. And these skills can be learned and mastered at a young age. And even if they're not learned and mastered at a young age, as a young professional, you can hone these same skills as well. And then I would say thirdly, uh, assets come in all forms. And so um, there's a huge wealth gap in this country between black and brown and white communities. This need not be a permanent condition there are existing resources out there that have not been fully realized by these communities. And, uh, you know, I, as I just described what, what's going on in terms of land ownership and gentrification, the key is you can be part of the gentrification. Don't think of yourself necessarily as being gentrified out of communities, but how can you benefit from it, um, you know, where you are? And so um, that's really the, uh, the message there. So I think those are... Those are some, some key things. And I did want to add in terms of philanthropy, because I've been in philanthropy now for a long time. I'm a believer uh, in, in the idea that philanthropy can do and does do a lot of good um, for, 
people, especially from marginalized communities, but equity and grant-related or double bottom line investing, for example, in urban areas where gentrification may be prevalent, and the program-related investments to support efforts uh, to develop assets in the South and in other communities where black and brown communities are, I think is is something that uh, all foundations can, can and have the opportunity to uh, master uh, for the benefit of young people. Excellent, thank you. That uh, that that sounds like a treatise that that is so it's almost really a blueprint for success. I love it. It's very empowering. And the the tagline that keep came keep keeps coming to my mind is the art of possibility, right? Yes. And through pos through art, there is seen possibility. I'd never really thought of that before. But seeing role models who look like you beyond your principle, but in in different kind of venues and vehicles that we're entertained by, among other things, are really powerful for society. So, oh, thank I, you. absolutely. And you know, Kenneth, as you brought up the arts, it's so important. So, I'm on the I'm on a board of a foundation here in Texas, and we cover Arkansas as well. And I couldn't I. I wish people understood the value and the impact of the arts in our under-championed communities. I won't say underprivileged, we're just under-championed. And so we had- yes, thank you. If we had more leaders like yourself on foundation boards to understand the nonprofits to support the arts, we would have more people that look like us to give our younger generations the opportunity to dream and to acquire those navigation skills. The last thing that I'll say here too, because I, I don't hear this enough, Kenneth, is the asset that assets come in all forms. And so having that educational piece for our younger generations, for them to understand I, I want I want to be part of that conversation to push that out. So it's a great one. There's there, there's there's room for everybody to be part of it. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kenneth. This has been very enlightening. Thank you for taking time out of what is a busy schedule, schedule making impact at scale. Um, we we loved it. We enjoyed it. Uh, you've met every and exceeded every expectation. So thank you so much for being with us here in America Artists. Thank you, Kenneth. It's my pleasure. You, you, you both very wonderful people, and um, I think that this uh, podcast project is something that's very needed for everyone. Thank you so much.